Welcome back. It's episode 135 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast. Come to you, as we always do, from the faculty lounge of the Epstein and U School of Law, the world's second institution of higher learning, where the corpse of Jeremy Bentham attends the board meetings. That's a true story. Look it up. I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter and author of the popular YA series, Young Millard Fillmore. And I am joined, as always, by the Leno and Letterman of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush Administration. So... Fellas, halfway through 2020, and we've had a global pandemic, an economic collapse, and widespread civil unrest. I'm taking bets for the second half of the year. My money is on the supervolcano under Yellowstone. So, John, you're out there in Northern California. Richard, you're back in Chicago now, having abandoned those of us in the New York City area. I was disappointed to learn that you flew back. I was hoping you were making a Mad Max Fury Road-style trek out of the city. (laughs) But, I mean, boys, what's what's life like around you? If I were to transport someone from five years in the past to your city, would they have a sense that America 2020 is a place in chaos? Well, I'll answer the question. I don't think they saw it as a case in chaos, but you walk outside, you see perfectly sane people of all ages, sizes, and description wearing masks. It's looking in strange places, and you can't quite figure out what it is that they're hiding from. And then you go into the various stores, and you're supposed to put them on. I walked in a sweat today in order to get to the beauty parlor to get my hair cut for the first time in umpteen years. And the first thing they did was they put a temperature thing on my far. And I said, but I'm sweating from walking. But I passed anyhow, got the thing done, and I sneaked my nose out from underneath my mask. So I was going what I like to call half mask uh, under these circumstances. Uh, The restaurants are now open outdoors. So I don't think that it's crazy. You desue many boarded up shops from the what has happened with respect to the riots and so forth. And you don't talk to many people on the public streets. But it's certainly when you look around, it doesn't look as though this is a city uh, which has a confidence strong to its step and a little bit of upswing in its voice. Uh, This is a place which has been really beaten up, I think, and it's going to take a long time for it to recover. The beauty parlor. I can't get over that it's the beauty parlor. Just don't say hand stroke, Kirk. It's an excellent place if you want to go on North State Street. I was going to say, Richard, don't manage, mention its name. You're going to kill their business. Uh, no, they want the plug. They got to pay. <laughs> no, they did a, John they had a terrific job. job. And they come in there and they just go, give me the, give me the Epstein. Just give me the Epstein. <laughs> I don't think any woman wants my crew cut. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> John, what does Berkeley look like? You know, I would have said a few weeks ago it was like summer vacation came early you know a lot of the students are gone a lot of the faculty are gone a lot of the restaurants are basically half open but now i think people in california are starting to practice civil disobedience i mean i walk down streets i see businesses furtively open i see people eating where they're not supposed to be eating i see people even engaging in shopping and other horrible activities (laughs) I think people in California have basically had it with these lockdowns, and they are gonna—they're starting to ignore 
uh, the government. And I think that's a mistake for the government because they've gone to, I think they've gone too far. And Northern California is nowhere bad as Southern California. You've seen these videos of uh, restaurants open, people at bars, no one's wearing masks, people are all over the beaches. And I think that's uh, happening up here too, just not as uh, great numbers as they are down in SoCal. Okay, so with everything going on, I guess we should start with the police issue because these past few months have been so time distorting. It's kind of hard to believe that the the whole George Floyd incident hadn't even occurred the last time that the three of us talked. So actually, let's do this. Before we get into the wider implications of that, let let me just get you to one specific point on that case, on the Floyd case, because this has gotten a lot of attention the past couple of weeks. Keith Ellison He's the attorney general of Minnesota. Many people might remember him as a somewhat controversial and very liberal congressman has taken over the prosecution of Derek Chauvin, the cop who was holding George Floyd down. And he has brought in a second-degree murder charge in addition to the pre-existing third-degree murder charge. Mm-hmm. So two two things from this. One, how much of a danger is there here of prosecutorial overreach, of overcharging this guy and then seeing him walk as a consequence? And two— Let's just do some crim law 101. How is it that you can be charged with second-degree murder and third-degree murder? He's also up for second-degree manslaughter, all for the same act. Richard, I'll start with you. Uh, look, this is a terra incognita. Uh, they would, Originally, they charged second-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter, so you clearly can do multiple charges. And if you could do two, my guess is that you could start to do three. What's going to happen is they start to prove these things, so they're going to mess up their own case. Uh, this is not a situation where the rule is the more you charge, the better you are. One of the things to remember is that the original autopsy report did not treat this as a death by asphyxiation. It basically referred to his drug condition and a bunch of other stuff. I don't believe he died exactly on the spot, but died somewhat thereafter. And so one of the things that you're going to have to do is to answer the question, if somebody decides to ask the coroner why it is that you changed the um, autopsy report under these circumstances, and you find out that there was some level of political influence on that, that would completely change the case. I can't believe under any circumstances that he should be, uh, should walk or should be allowed to walk. So I'm pretty sure that there'll be some kind of conviction. Uh, but I think in effect, there is a danger, in fact, of overcharging. The reason they did not do first-degree murder, I think it's important mentioning at least once again, is whatever was wrong with the policeman Chauvin in this particular case, he wasn't trying to kill the guy. Uh, one of the things, of course, that will happen when you start to do the defense work is you will no longer treat the uh, Floyd as though he was simply a passive object in the hands of the sheriffs. You'll start to talk about resisting arrest and all sorts of other things. And so what they're going to do is to show that they were in some kind of reasonable apprehension. At this particular point, it's going to be a little bit harder to prove a clear case of manifest um, excessive force, even though I'm pretty sure you could get a conviction on this. So uh, the defense lawyer, of course, doesn't have to share in the verities of the time, and he will push extremely hard. Remember what happened when they tried to go after Trayvon Martin. In that case, I think it was pretty clear that Martin had tried to kill Zimmerman rather than the other way around, and there was an acquittal, and there was no subsequent reaction by a further suit either in the civil or on the criminal side under the civil rights law. And so it's true in all of these cases uh, that what happens in the press is that the victim conduct tends to be ignored. What happens at the trial is that a good defense lawyer will put it front and center. Whether they will put these guys on the stand in order to testify is going to be, of course, 
a very, very tough condition. Uh, but it might well be that it's going to be a fairly effective strategy to have him tell his story, even though he'll be subject to withering cross-examination. So as they say, that's why you hire good defense counsel, because they have to make all of these decisions, and they're ultimately tactical. I think the danger that Ellison has as a person, he's a bit too gung-ho. And when you're gung-ho and indignant, you don't tend to see the other side of the case. And the last thing you want to do as a prosecutor is to learn how, how weak your case is uh, when you actually put it on before a jury. John? I, I actually think there's a serious risk of the government losing the case for two reasons. One, Ellison is not a trial lawyer. He's a politician. I can't imagine a bigger gift to the defense than to put some blowhard politician in charge of something really difficult like winning a criminal conviction against a police officer. Is he going to try the case himself? Yes, he said he's going to do it. If he's smart, he'll he'll just make some kind of opening arguments and hand it over. But, you know, he inserted himself into it to become the lead of the trial team, which is, I I think, a disaster. It's it's such a a stupid maneuver that Mr. Troisenic, I simply thought that his department (laughs) was taking over it at a higher level. No, 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 no. In fact, this reminds you of when, like, governors show up to argue cases at the Supreme Court on behalf of their states. They always get clobbered. Never a good idea. The second thing is, and I'll go, maybe I'm a little tougher on the government than Richard. I think a third-degree murder case would be maybe easier to win. So third-degree in this case, as I understand Minnesota law, is you know recklessly uh, taking action, yeah, which killed Chauvin. They they Floyd. actually upped it. I'm sorry, Floyd. They upped it to second-degree murder by using what's called the felony murder rule, which is uh, an old rule which says if you commit a felony and and you you intended to commit the felony and you kill someone in the process you can be charged at a higher level of of murder. The problem here is it's not clear to me what's the felony that's separate them from the murder. There, you know, it's all one course of action. You know, the putting the neck on Mr. Floyd's neck killed him. What's the separate felony that Chauvin committed apart from that? I think that's going to be a really uh, good vulnerability for the defense to exploit. Did they really do this? I mean, John, this is just sheer incompetence on their part. Uh, The classic kind of felony murder case was a situation where you're sitting in the front of the car driving a getaway vehicle in a robbery, and somebody commits a burglary in the back and the or a murder in the back, and the person in the front is going to be charged with the murder in the back. But uh, you don't have any separation in time and space. Are they going to say that the first felony was to arrest the guy? If they're doing that, oh, my God. I mean, Ellison already should get himself out of this case. He's not qualified to be a lawyer. I I, I mean, the problem to me is they did it because second-degree murder sounds better than third-degree murder. You have the sentence just goes up from 30 to 40 years. And Chauvin gets convicted of third-degree murder. He'll spend most of the rest of his life in prison anyway. And so you you worry that it's political grandstanding, but you're really raising the risks of lo- I mean, losing the case. If you're the defense attorney, you, you this is all great. Right? Now, this is great. You what do have this ch- problem with, with public perception. You saw people actually, when the initial charges came out, calling for first-degree charges. The general Can't public win. just yeah. thinking that the yeah. higher the charge, the exactly. more moral disapproval that you're yes. freighting it with. So l- let me move you guys to something slightly separate but related on this because – we got some decisions from the Supreme Court yesterday, which we'll talk about in a bit. But in addition to the cases that the court decided, we also got news. <clears throat> excuse me. We also got news about the cases they decided not, not to hear. hear. 
And one of the issues they turned away was the topic du jour, which is qualified immunity, the doctrine under which police can be insulated from legal liability for some kinds of conduct in the course of their professional duties. And the one dissent against that choice came from Justice Thomas, which, by the way, I think pointing out double standards in the media is usually tedious, but imagine the kind of coverage that this would have gotten if the sole dissent on this issue was from the court's lone black justice and he was a liberal. I mean, you kind of got crickets about this. Anyway, here's what Thomas said. I'll give you the quote. I have previously expressed my doubts about our qualified immunity jurisprudence because our qualified immunity doctrine appears to stray from the statutory text. I would grant this petition in several different respects. It appears that our analysis is no longer grounded in the common law backdrop against which Congress enacted the 1871 act. Close quote. Now, John, two things here. First of all, Do you think Justice Thomas is right that qualified immunity has expanded beyond what the relevant law can actually bear? And second, what about the prudential question here? Is this an issue, to the extent that it needs to be addressed, that is better suited for revision through the court or through Congress? Great questions. I I think uh, Justice Thomas is right. And in fact, if you look at the Civil Rights Acts, which create these causes of action, there's no mention of qualified immunity. This is actually a creation, I believe, of Chief Justice Warren. It's a Warren Court opinion. And it creates this idea. Oh, I didn't... Very good. It creates this doctrine out of whole cloth. I mean, I understand the pragmatic reasons the court did it. It doesn't feel that police officers should be sued for uh, changes in the law or unclear standards in the law, but it's led to a huge mess. Now, the other reason, this is the more pragmatic reason why um, I don't think there's any problem with the court getting rid of a previously court-created doctrine rather than Congress doing it. I mean, Congress can do it because it's a federal statute that creates the right to sue for civil rights violations in the first places. It seems to me you're just talking about shifting the costs around. So right now, uh, you can't sue the city, you can't sue the state, you go for peace officers, qualified immunity. If you got rid of qualified immunity, I imagine what would happen is that the police forces or the city or even the state would get uh, insurance and they would use that insurance to pay for any kinds of uh, losses that are incurred from these losses, just the way like corporate executives have what's called director and officer liability insurance. Because if you're a police officer, they won't be able to hire. Police forces won't be able to hire any police officers unless they are able to offer this kinds of insurance because while police are, which would you know, subject themselves to unending lawsuits because these kinds of situations are fast moving. They require split second decisions. Life and death is at stake. And if in the back of mind you might be sued, well, no one's going to want to be take these jobs if they don't have some kind of insurance with it. Look, I, John is right, but let me go back to the statutory question. Uh, what happens is the Section 1983 passed in 1871, which is at the height of the Reconstruction period, uh, sort of says anybody who suffers the deprivation of a uh, constitutional right at the hands of any person has a right in to bring a suit against it. It's very, very broad. Uh, Not only does it cover essentially police officers who get qualified immunity today, but it would also cover judges and prosecutors. So you could imagine saying, okay, here's a judge who issues a wrong decision on a particular case. Uh, Somebody's put into jail for six months before the thing is reversed. Uh, Can that judge now be sued by the person who's been put into jail? And if you're worried about getting somebody to be a police officer under a qualified immunity, you're going to get nobody to be a judge 
If the only thing you have is a qualified immunity and somebody has to answer the question deeply factual as to whether or not malice would work. There's a case called Barmy Mateo decided in 1959 by uh, the great Justice Harlan, who said so long as public officials are working within, quote, the outer perimeter of their duty, uh, what happens under those particular circumstances is that they uh, cannot be sued for tort liability. You rely on administrative sanctions. They got rid of that in the case, introduced qualified immunity. Given the fact that these are all conscious acts, then you had this huge question as to whether or not you could ever get a summary judgment on malice, and eventually you had to go back to the absolute standard. So I think what was on going on in Pearson and Ray is uh, you do something, the civil rights laws are rapidly changing because of the innovations of the Warren Court. Somebody follows the earlier precedent and then gets hit by the novel decisions coming. They didn't want them to be liable. This is of a piece, by the way, of Terry against Ohio, in which when you started to deal with stock and frisk, the same Warren Court went out of its way with Justice Holland going along to say, my God, if you're going to engage in a stop, you have to be allowed to take a frisk. Otherwise, what's going to happen is you could get yourself killed and nobody will a police officer. Um, I think the Warren court decisions were about right. I think the mistake is that people have given qualified immunity to cases where the law is clear and people are just doing something dumb. So I can't conceive of how the doctrine of qualified immunity uh, would work in this particular case and, and, and protect this guy. Uh, so as far as I'm concerned under these circumstances, uh, it's not this doctrine which is holding everything up. It's what John said is right. Ellison's taking over the case himself. He should be basically charged with legal malpractice. He's not a trial lawyer, and it really makes a difference. You don't want a grandstand, and you have to be very careful about the charging under these things. So, ironically, the point is really there, uh, but it's much more relevant than the case that took place in Atlanta, uh, where you know you start to arrest somebody, he resists or resists, he seizes a weapon, you go after him, he turns around and shoots, he misses, you then turn, and he's got his back, and you shoot on him, and the question is, is that excessive force? After all, he might have just kept on running. Then again, he might have turned around and fired the taser a second time. I think in that case, uh, qualified immunity is probably fully warranted under the circumstances. Uh, You don't have that kind of ongoing flow in the situation that happened in Minnesota. You know, in in all this pessimism about the direction of the country and all all these signs of national decline lately, I, I feel like we're overlooking maybe the biggest one, which is that America now has a successful separatist movement, and it's called CHAZ. If that's not a surefire sign of decadence, I don't know what is. Is that Seattle? This is Seattle. So if you haven't been keeping up with this story, a small part of Seattle's Capitol Hill neighborhood has essentially declared itself autonomous. CHAZ actually stands for Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And the city of Seattle has permitted this. They've essentially ceded the territory. They pulled the police out. There's no particularly meaningful civic authority there. And a lot of people are treating this as a joke. And you can sort of understand why. These folks don't control more than a few blocks. And their founding fathers, actually that term is probably too gendered for them, but they're already devolving into this kind of uh, Baroque left-on-left cannibalism. But the, the surrendering of public space... That feels like a big deal to me. John, wouldn't Andrew Jackson have strung these Antifa kids up? You know, I, I would like to take the Seattle people up on their offer and let them leave the union. I could imagine <laughs> the worst thing we could do to Canada than allowing Seattle to join up. But, but, yeah, but John, John. And they can take a Starbucks. Lovely with, take a Starbucks lovely city. And Amazon with them. Uh, but, but seriously, uh, 
Yeah, it's. I mean, it seems like a small thing, but you know, in the past, presidents have used their authority to put down things which may be similar in scope. Uh, not even you, know, you mentioned Andrew Jackson during what was called the debate over nullification, where South Carolina uh, threatened not to collect a federal tariff, basically. And Andrew Jackson wonderfully threatened to lead an army of 10,000 volunteers into Charleston and hang as a traitor the governor of South Carolina. And since Jackson was a uh, known <laughs> uh, general who won the Battle of New Orleans, the, uh, re- the uh, threatened rebellion collapsed at once. But even before then, in 1794, there was this thing called the Whiskey Rebellion, where these farmers on the western front here in Pennsylvania refused to pay federal tax on their whiskey and they ended up i think maybe kidnapping one or two federal officials and tar and feathering them they might i think they might have uh taken over or burned down a federal courthouse or a federal building george washington personally called out state militias and led it he was actually riding a horse at the head of the column and he showed in pennsylvania everybody scattered but, you know, take more serious examples than that. Um, you have Dwight Eisenhower in uh, the Little wake Rock. of Brown versus Board. Yeah, he called out the 101st Airborne. And there's this myth out there that you can't uh, use troops to restore order or to stop defiance of federal law unless the state governor invites you or the state legislature. That wasn't the case in Little Rock because there the governor, Governor Faubus, he had called out the National Guard units in his state to oppose Brown versus Board. But yeah, Dwight Eisenhower sent troops. John F. Kennedy sent troops to desegregate too. And then you had the riots of 1968, 1969. Troops were sent by Lyndon Johnson to uh, help quell those riots. And most recently, 92 in LA, after the Rodney King verdict, uh, there were severe rioting in downtown L.A., and uh, got President Bush, uh, with the request of Governor Wilson, sent in troops to help quell the disturbances. So uh, this may seem small in scale compared to some of the more recent ones, but this Chaz thing is an effort to, right, to eject the federal law, federal officials, state law, state officials declare some kind of independent zone free of the jurisdiction of the United States. I don't think that should be tolerated. Nor do I. I think it's kind of ironic. Uh, there are lots of people who live in that zone who are certainly not part of that particular movement. And what's going to happen if it turns out that the leaders of this movement decide to use force against those people who resist? Uh, they either keep them in their homes or they won't, or they evict them from their homes. They keep them in the zone. They get them out of the zone. I don't think they get qualified immunity, as it were. I think that these people are just simply lawless. Um, look, this is part of a wider trend, which I think is extremely disturbing. Uh, you can think what you want about Black Lives Matter or any other particular kind of movement. But when you start seeing people uh, like the, you know, Chesa Boudin in in San Francisco, and then I forget this man's name in New York City saying, you know, uh, somebody just simply wants to tag a synagogue and so forth and put hate crimes on walls. These are low-level offenses. They don't put any danger to public health, and we let them kind of go. I think that's crazy. I mean, to my mind, the moment... These are district attorneys, we should make clear. Chesa Boudin, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, uh, but they're just and, the, and the, the guy, the loser in New York City, you're trying to think of. I think yeah. is named De Blasio. Is that his no, name? no? He's the he's the, he's the mayor. I, I'm trying to think no, of the I'm name of the attorney general. Um, the Blasio no, actually, kidding. he's in this in terrible position. Uh, the man is so inept and so lazy that he now incurs the laugh of both the civil rights movement on the one hand and the police forces on the other. Uh, because <laughs> I'm doing uh, well, it's because he's so utterly ineffective and intellectually sort of inert and just congenital lazy in terms of everything that he wants to do and so forth. He cannot exert any degree of leadership. But the old view of broken windows policing, which says if you start to let something like tagging a synagogue or a church or a mosque go untarnished, you're going to see more of that stuff. And after a while, it's just going to escalate. Um, you cannot run a world in the most general terms by simply trying to put out carrots to those people with whom you disagree in the hope that they'll abide. If you want to do a word, the thousandth carrot is going to do no good whatsoever after you've given 999, the first stick has to be employed. And the correct situation about any system of social control is you have to use both of these devices and you have to use them judicially and judiciously and that's going to depend upon at the margin what you're doing. And it's really hard to get the close cases right. Nobody's going to deny that. Uh, but if it turns out you simply rule sticks off the table, everybody who has ill will towards their fellow man knows that they have a free ride because they do something wrong. Well, what's going to happen? You offer them yet another carrot. They give you the carrot and so forth. So what's happened with the entire thing that's happened after George Floyd is we're in an all-carrot universe at this particular point in time. And, you know, I'm told that the police were ordered to kind of stand down in Chicago by Lori Lightfoot, the mayor. Well, I mean, there are a lot of broken windows in my particular city. A lot of them are owned by black citizens, Hispanic citizens, uh, rich white citizens. It doesn't really matter. Equal justice before the law means that if you're a mayor, if you're a prosecutor, you have to take care of the people whom you don't like as well as the people whom you do like. And this entire Black Lives Matter movement has now gotten to the point where the only question is how much more concessions we do. What is left to be done? You've already reformed the police forces. You have large numbers of black commissions, all sorts of racial training and profiling, affirmative action and diversity hiring of one form. Uh, sooner or later, you're going to have to realize that you've played out that game. You've done the right things. I'm not objecting to it. Uh, but if every time somebody does an offense, what we do is we say we have to reconsider what more we can do in order to avoid this. We're going to play a game in which there'll just be repeated escalations, ineffective responses, and then more. Why would anybody stop using violence if the only thing that you get in response to violence is more goodies? So this is a very serious problem that they're placing. And the city council in Seattle is a little bit off the top of its head one way or another. Um, and there's now you're not just talking about taxation of Amazon and other kinds of companies. You're talking about basic civic peace. And somebody has to reconsider the fact that a no-force policy against people who use force is always doomed and destined to failure. All right. So I promised that we'd get to the Supreme Court. The, the, oh. the big story this week, the case of Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia, although this is actually a consolidation of a few cases around whether LGBT employees had the same anti-discrimination protections under the 1964 Civil Rights Act as other protected groups, even though they're not specifically referred to in the text of the law. And to the surprise of a lot of observers, the court said yes in a 6-3 opinion written by Justice Gorsuch. So let me give you two salient quotes here. First one, Justice Gorsuch from the opinion. Today, we must decide whether an employer can fire someone simply for being homosexual or transgender. The answer is clear. 
an employer who fires an individual for being homosexual or transgender fires that person for traits or actions it would not have questioned in members of a different sex. Sex plays a necessary and undisguisable role in the decision, exactly what Title VII forbids. Close quote. And then the other quote, Justice Alito from the dissent, channeling his inner Nino Scalia, the court's opinion is like a pirate ship. It sails under a textualist flag, but what it actually represents is a theory of statutory interpretation that Justice Scalia excoriated, the theory that courts should quote-unquote update old statutes so that they better reflect the current values of society. Close quote. John, who's playing the stronger hand here? I don't I think that Justice Alito. <laughs> I think Justice Alito has it right. I, I um, as a policy matter, I would include gays and transgender in Title VII protections, but I don't think that's for the court to decide. I think Congress already decided, already drew the lines. I think uh, Justice Alito makes, a, I mean, a very common sense point, which is uh, the Congress of 1964 would not have sought to protect gays. I mean, it was until 1963, it was okay to discriminate against blacks and Asians and anybody else on the basis of race or gender. I think it seems too far a leap to think that the Congress of 1964 was trying to include gays. And then Justice Lewis says, and the idea of gender identity didn't even exist in 1964. So what Justice Gorsuch is trying to do is saying, I, I don't care what people in 1964 thought. I don't care what the Congress thought. The plain language of the text overrides that. And when you say you can't discriminate on the basis of sex, his view is I, when you say I'm going to fire men who like other men, but I'm going to employ men who like women, that is fundamentally because of the sex of the employee that you cause that difference. And so therefore that plain meaning of the statute overrides, I think what everyone would concede it was the generally understood meaning back in 1964. I just don't think these kind of changes should occur by the uh, fiat of the judges. Congress could and is considered, in fact, the House has passed a bill to do exactly what this court decision has done. The Senate passed a similar bill a few years ago, died in the House. It's still, this one is still pending in the Senate, but this is, it seems to be exactly the kind of decision that's uh, up for decision by Congress or the states or by people and companies in general. I, I mean, I don't see why this is not something we can't let the normal political process handle. Look, I will be a slightly different kind of an answer, especially more on the textualism. What Justice Gorsuch said is if the text is clear, you don't look at the context, by which he means the legislative history and everything else. Uh, but the text is not clear in the way in which he wants to do it. He says we have to give sex a broad meaning under the 1964 Act. There's absolutely no textual authority and no historical authority which says that you do that. We understand when sex was read into this by Howard Smith, it was an effort to embarrass people who thought that race discrimination was an improper thing by putting in sex. Uh, I, it's clear that what he meant by that is you cannot say to somebody that I will not hire you because you are a woman, uh, which is not the same thing as saying I cannot hire you because you're a woman engaged in certain kinds of activities, which would be okay in a man. And if you can basically say that the text has a huge transformative meaning by taking the obvious meaning, which starts looking at the sex only and ignoring all the behaviors that are associated with it, which is the way the thing 
is written, uh, then it turns out that the context is important because it is as conclusive as anything that the narrow construction which you could give on this particular term is the only one that was there. Uh, assume that this was a contract case and you some said to somebody by way of an agreement, you cannot fire somebody because of her sex. And the contract was entered into in 1964. And then what it is that you fire, not because she's a woman, but you fire her because she engages in homosexual activities, and you would fire a man if he engaged in homosexual activities. If you then go back to this particular contract, would you update? And given the fact that it had been perfectly clear the other way around, and in fact, if what they simply said at the time of the contract is, we will hire women just as we will hire men, and then you add the other clause, and we're going to hire or fire both of them only if essentially because of that. But if anybody engages in illegal activities, i.e. homosexual behavior at the time, uh, we can certainly fire them. And remember, it wasn't only that these things were not protected, uh, but in many things, these cases were still, was still criminal conduct. And, you know, if you go back and you look at Bowers and Hardwick decided in the mid-1960s, uh, at that particular point, I think it was Justice Powell comes up and he goes through statute after statute, which makes it perfectly clear that everybody thought uh, that when you're starting to deal with personal liberties, uh, that the morals head of the police power allowed you to forbid the engagement in sexual conduct, uh, which was that time regarded in some senses deviant. Well, it seems very odd if you know this to say, look, here's conduct that you could punish criminally. But on the other hand, what we're going to do is treat it as protected civilly. Uh, that is just going so far out of the boundary. So what's really happening here, and I'll, let me put the point in the following way and I'll stop, is that there was an earlier decision about this in Gloucester Conte, in which the entire argument was based on our deference, meaning, in effect, if a federal agency construes a federal statute in a way that is barely defensible, we will defer to it, which is what the Obama administration had done when it had put out its orders saying that uh, sexual orientation, transgender behavior, and so forth uh, were essentially forbidden categories. And the clear implication was that when the Trump administration reviewed those things, the entire case collapsed. And so what happens is now what we do is we take exactly the same argument. We call them textual arguments, introduce all sorts of non-textual elements in the thing. Uh, so this is essentially another form of our deference. And, and textualism is, is now being subject to a large amount of uh, particular abuse. Philosophically, this is not a defensible opinion. If you have two people enter into a contract to buy and sell a horse, and they're looking at a cow, and afterwards somebody says, well, the cow is not a horse, you would certainly be allowed to introduce parole evidence, at least as between the original party saying they pointed to this particular cow, they called it a horse, they meant for the contract to be for this cow, not to be for a horse that isn't there. And you know, all sorts of times you introduce parole um, in the case of these ambiguities. And this is surely a case, given that what Justice Gorsuch is doing is finding a meaning of a term that was nowhere to be found at the time, that you could introduce the parole evidence, i.e. the legislative history, to show exactly what they meant, and they certainly didn't mean this. John, you heard a lot of griping from conservatives after this decision was handed down about Justice Gorsuch. It, it was, here we go again, we've got a Republican appointee on the court, and he goes wobbly after a couple of years. With the Chief Justice, we've all kind of priced that into the market at this point. But <laughs> is it, how do you react to that? Is it premature for people to be worrying that Gorsuch has broken free of his intellectual moorings? I think it's too early to tell. Um, part this is one decision. I can't think of another one where Gorsuch has really done anything terribly liberal. It doesn't involve interpreting the Constitution. Um, the one thing 
people might worry about, which I could see, is not the outcome on individual cases, although that's, I think, what the evangelical supporters of the Trump administration are upset about. It's more, uh, you know, sort of Gorsuch is, a, you, know, put, you know, torpedoed his own boat. I mean, Gorsuch wrote a whole book. He made these claims that he's a textualist. Uh, he believes in interpreting the Constitution based on the original understanding of its words. And then to, I guess, sort of play these kinds of, I think, unpersuasive games uh, really just in a way shows that he thinks he can make his methodology turn out to whatever whatever outcome he wants. And if that's the case, then you could see claims from others. Uh, Some are being debated these days amongst legal conservatives, which is, why should we stick to any methodology at all? The liberals don't. Why don't conservatives just do conservative things now that they're in control? Who cares about the methodology and oppose a kind of conservative uh, political philosophy and theory through the Constitution rather than being wedded to any uh, methodology? And I could see, you know, Gorsuch could be you know, the first salvo in that kind of movement, too, which I would which I would oppose. I would be really opposed to something like that. I, look, I think Gorsuch is actually kind of true to himself. Um, he has a fairly strong philosophical background, studied philosophy with John Finnis at Oxford, no amateur, natural law thinker of one kind or another. And I have no doubt that he said what he believed and believed what he said. I think it's just bad philosophy. Um, I don't know what it says in other cases because there is a sense in which uh, you will find it very uncommon to find a situation where a written text understood one way gets a radical transformation when it costs to go in another way. But here's another example when you ask yourself. What happens is property, when we start talking about no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, typically it's meant common law interests, stairs and stocks, land, and so forth. Can somebody now start to say that, well, property includes a right to a public education from the state, and so therefore if they don't give it to you, uh, what's going to happen is there's going to be a deprivation of property. Remember, an issue very similar to this came up in the Sixth Circuit, uh, where there was a divided opinion saying that the state of Michigan owed Michigan owed to every one of its citizens a right to have them uh, minimum literacy. And we could now argue that that's a property right of some sort or another. I don't think that's what the common law meant by this. And so the worry is if you could play the dance that you're going to do with respect to Gorsuch on the meaning uh, of the word discrimination and so forth and of sex, uh, can you do the same thing so that now all affirmative rights essentially are protected by the Equal Protection Clause and a complete reversal of the trend that we had starting back with um, Goldberg and Kelly earlier on, uh, which was mainly procedural, now say there's a constitutional right to welfare. And it's not a question of giving people the right procedures. You can only take away that welfare if you give them a substitute of equal value. I don't know where all of this stuff leads, but I am quite apprehensive about it because not only do we see all the changes in the way in which the political system is working, it may well be that very new and exotic theories of constitutional interpretation will start to take root on both the left and the right. So I think in the answer is it is too early to tell. Uh, and let me put it to this way. My confidence in the Supreme Court is not going to be enhanced. The other point I think to mention quite clearly is that on this one, at least, the four liberals are as one. And it turns out that on constitutional matters or in matters of high political import, it's much more difficult to find a disagreement amongst the members of the left. And it's much easier to find disarray amongst the members of the so-called five-member uh, white right-wing coalition. 
Well, on that front, it's from a few weeks ago, but I do want to get you guys to weigh in on another ruling from the court that made waves for about 48 hours and then got swallowed up by the news cycle, which was this case out of California where a church in the San Diego area tried to get an injunction because of the restrictions that Governor Newsom put on religious gatherings as an emergency public health measure. You couldn't congregate at over 25% of a building's capacity and the ceiling on attendance was set at 100. And the church's argument was that this was a First Amendment violation because those limitations were more severe than the restrictions that were placed on comparable secular businesses. Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh bought that. Chief Justice Roberts did not, and along with the four liberal justices, turned them down. I'll give you a quote from that opinion. Although California's guidelines place restrictions on places of worship, those restrictions appear consistent with the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. Similar or more severe restrictions apply to comparable secular gatherings, including lectures, concerts, movie showings, spectator sports, and theatrical performances where large groups of people gather in close proximity for extended periods of time. And the order exempts or treats more leniently only dissimilar activities, such as operating grocery stores, banks, and laundromats, in which people neither congregate in large groups nor remain in close proximity for extended periods. The Chief Justice clearly has nicer banks and laundromats in his neighborhood than I have in mine. John, <laughs> John what do you make of this? That was pretty good. I, you know, I think uh, looking back on it now, uh, from where we are today, that all just seems ridiculous. After we've seen huge protests all around the country in all of our major cities, uh, you know, I think they're justified as rights to free speech. When they dis- descend into rioting and looting, I don't think they're justified. But I don't see the governors and mayors out there trying to impose social distancing guidelines and demanding they all wear masks. And I think you saw this when you uh, had medical professionals, epidemiologists, other uh, doctors signing letters saying that the importance of protesting the Floyd killing overrode public health requirements. So I, uh, to me, that just smacks of viewpoint discrimination. You, the, these governance, governments uh, support protest First Amendment speech uh, against police brutality, that's fine. But then they shouldn't be subjecting people who want to exercise their First Amendment rights to religious worship differently. And so maybe at the time Chief Justice Roberts was writing, uh, whatever, the you know, seems like a long time ago, yeah. maybe he was right to defer to state health officials. But now I think it's open for everyone to see that these distinctions are increasingly irrational. And I think that's why you see places like California, a lot of people are no longer following uh, the guidelines because they've seen arbitrary enforcement by cities and states. They also see, let me, John has talked about the equal protection dimension of this problem, uh, saying in effect that the restrictions you impose on religious organizations are much more severe than on other kinds of First Amendment activity. So John is not attacking the distinction between a grocery store where nobody congregates for a meeting um, and the religious organizations. What he's doing is he's comparing the riots and the marches with respect to what's going on. But suppose we want to look at it another way and ask ourselves, is this thing justified? 
about in terms of health and safety. And here's what you have. Uh, you First of all, you have a order that requires that you separate people by six feet and so forth. And the question you first want to ask is, well, now, why is it that you come up with six feet? Most people don't understand how that number came up. But this was not the result of any detailed scientific inquiry. Somebody had noted that the Europeans, when they had imposed their particular situations, had chosen three feet or one meter, roughly speaking. And somebody says, you know, we ought to be a little bit safer. Let's double it to six. That's not science. But when you double the length, what you do is you quadruple the area. And now all of a sudden you make it impossible for anybody to congregate. So the issue is, well, why do you need that? What evidence could you put forward on the merits to make that work? How much deference do you need? Then, of course, they're also wearing masks. And the question is, well, why are you asking people to wear masks? Well, it turns out the reason is that you're worried that they're going to hurl some uh, saliva out at a fairly large distance that will land on somebody else. Uh, but if, in fact, you can show that virtually everybody in this place has not coughed once in the entire time, is it still appropriate to say, well, we have to keep the mask on because if they weren't to cough, this would happen? Well, I mean, one of the things, of course, is somebody says, yes, people will cough. So what you do is you put up a sign. Please bring handkerchiefs and cover your mouth and face. And if you don't have a handkerchief, please cough to the ground. And if you can't do that, cough into your elbow. Um, so I tend to think that a lot of these restrictions are extremely overbroad on the straight substantive situation. Remember how it was that this stuff passed in New York and why it never took hold in California in the same degree. New York is a subway city. I've been in New York subways. You are basically cheek by jowl to people very, very close touching them in all sorts of ways for prolonged periods of time. And it's easy to see how you can spread that. In California, I mean, these people are in Berkeley, for God's sake. And, you know, they pass each other on their bicycles or in their automobiles. Like and, the weed shop. <laughs> that's your local weed shop. And, and, and so what happens is in New York, uh, it turns out through complete and gross mismanaged by my, Mr. Cuomo, particularly on the incident of requiring COVID-positive people to be forced into nursing homes. And so well, you get these very high rates. And California, what is it, two or 3,000 dead in a state of 40 million people? I mean, I think somebody is certainly allowed to say that this is a huge amount of overreach under these circumstances, and you ought not to do it. Uh, you know, I am in favor of deference with respect to this stuff. Uh, but in emergencies, an emergency does not last 90 days. And the moment you put this thing into place, I think somebody should be allowed to take Gavin Newsom or, Mar or Andrew Cuomo or any of the other governors who are doing this stuff and to put them on the dock and say, show us what you've got. And I don't think they have anything. That is, they all rely on hidden epidemiological reports. And then what they do is they say there was an emergency. Now it's 30 days have passed. There's another emergency. And what they do is they basically double on down. So at some point, it seems to me that they should be able to raise not only an equal protection First Amendment type argument, but they should be able to raise the kind of argument which says, that looking at the way in which these things have been organized and knowing what we do about COVID, this turns out to be unreasonably excessive, uh, that the dangers to economic liberties and to personal freedom are very, very great, and the protections you're going to get are very, very uh, slight in these particular cases. Now, if you want to make sure that people wear masks when they're in elevators for a long period of time or they're in hospitals or in dentist offices and so forth, you don't even have to impose those things. A dentist office, my dentist always wears a mask, right? I mean, it's not as though I have to tell them. And you know what? I never wear a mask over my mouth when the dentist is working on it.
I may be unique in that situation, but I suspect other people are in the same position. Wait, 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 wait a second. How does a dentist work on you with your mouth? First of all, that's, that's the only joke, time I've ever John. heard your mouth being shut has been in the dentist. <laughs> well, no, no, it's not, it's not shut. It's just out here on John, the show. It's, the wrong, it's not shut. It's open, but it's immobilized, right? Uh, Where, I want that guy on here. He's got to take over from Troy. Or at least his drills. <laughs> I mean, they, 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 uh, not the drill, but I mean, they all wear stuff. No, no, he, he said and grill. By the way, Richard, I mean, that's, he's talking about you wear, having a grill, which is when drill, like, it's drill. all gold drill, or drill, silver drill, on your drill. team. Oh, oh no. I always think they're putting a grill on you, Richard. No, no, I mean, I'd pay good money. but By the way, <laughs> I mean, it, it turns out in dentist office, there is serious risk. Uh, particularly with bleeding and stuff going on, you want these people wearing oh, yeah. masks. But it I turns guess. out everybody in the world seems to be able to understand the relevant distinctions except governors. Who are I, was at mine the other day. I was at mine the other day, and they had the full plastic face cover, not not just the regular face. Really? And they and they hit us with the uh, the temperature gun on the inside. Yeah. Um, I mean, all right. Well, so uh, having driven this to a standstill, let <laughs> let's um, let me actually turn the page a little, so to speak, be, because there's an interesting debate happening right now over executive power in the in the context of john bolton's new book uh, which is called the room where it happened it's supposed to be coming out later this month but it's led to a big dust up with the trump administration attorney general barr says that bolton hasn't completed the vetting process that would be necessary to make sure he's not disclosing any classified information and the president has said that he wants to sue over the book and this is the quote i will consider every conversation with me as president highly classified now, John, there was a Politico story recounting that quote in which the author immediately followed it with this characterization, a blanket assertion that is legally dubious. No further explanation. Is he right? How dubious is it? A lot of our conversations about classifi- classification make the president's powers there sound almost plenary, unlimited. So how, how real are the limitations? Trump's going to lose. Bolton's going to win. Uh, the only thing Trump's doing is making sure that Bolton's book hits number one on the New York Times bestseller list faster than it would have originally. Because the First Amendment gives John the right to publish his book. The only thing Trump can do is if there really is classified information in the book is to is for the government to take the profits away based on some theory that the Supreme Court has upheld uh, that he violated his employment contract. So the book's going to come out on the day. The only question is, is Bolton going to get to keep the money for the, the millions and millions of dollars that Trump is ensuring that the book is going to make now. Now, the second thing is, yeah, you're right, uh, Troy, the president does have the right to classify information. Uh, There's no statute that actually gives him that right. It's always been thought to be inherent in the president's executive power. Uh, But that doesn't mean the president can just say everything I say is classified is truly classified. It does have to be related to the national security. And ultimately, um, if the agencies drag their feet or refuse to allow publication of a book and by, and I'm sorry, and Bolton wants to keep the money, then he can actually force this to court. And this is what the president shouldn't want. He shouldn't want courts going through it and reviewing whether all these presidential statements are really sufficiently connected to the national security and defense to amount to classified information, because that's going to be a large intrusion of the judiciary into the president's power. And any 
I think a responsible president would actually step back from any confrontation so that that power, which the presidents have had for a long time, don't get tested in the courts to the point where some judge is going to say, oh, I can take my pencil and I'm going to edit this and I'm going to review all the information that's classified and I will decide what's really necessary information for national security or not. Richard? Mm. Well, what's my view? Uh, first of all, you never want to get into a dispute over facts as to whether or not the review has or has not been completed. You never want to get into a dispute as an outsider as a fact, well, it has not been completed, but it turns out the administration has dragged its feet. And Chuck Cooper is a good friend and a great lawyer. So, I mean, when he starts to make these charges, I start to take them very seriously. Uh, uh, it turns out the attorney general is no slouch either, and he claims that it's not. I think somebody's going to have to decide that particular question. And then I think John is right that when it comes to the question of what it is that you can talk about, uh, you can't claim privilege with respect to everything. You have to be sort of careful. Uh, but, you know, suppose the president comes back and says anything that we he wants to put in this book is about the decisions I made with respect to whether or not to extend aid to the Ukraine. And so the question you'd have to ask, are those things classified discussions? I think on those questions, I, I, I don't know what the standard is because I don't think it's really been set up. But but it's at least a plausible situation uh, that if the president wants to get advice from somebody else, he has the same kind of benefit to that particular privilege as an attorney-client privilege works or when an attorney is trying to get information from a client in order to put the case forward. So I don't think it's just out of the question that it turns out that the president is going to lose. I haven't read the book. I don't know the information that he starts to make. I have no question that John is right that Whatever does come out is going to get 10 times the publicity that it had before. I would be stunned if it turned out that given the fact that it's Trump who's making these claims, uh, that they're going to be narrowly tailored to cover only the juiciest bits that are clearly protected. So my guess is a lot of this stuff will start to come out. But I think it's really dangerous to try and sort of judge these things. As I've always said, I'm a professor of law. I'm not a professor of fact. And this is a case which is going to have very heavily factual differences. And it may well be that you'll have to take this stuff, put it in camera before a district court judge, and he's going to have to go, or she's going to have to go line by line through this thing, figuring out whether or not this meets the standard or whether or not it doesn't. Okay, so final topic for today, and it's always the final topic is the most important one. Yes. And Richard... I think we've finally found one topic in the law that you have not previously opined on, which uh, is I'm what sure the New you're York, wrong, but which is what, well, <laughs> you're going to want to wait to hear what it is. Oh, what a, you shouldn't have tried that, Troy. Come on, which is, big mistake. Which big is, mistake. This is because the topic is what the New York Times refers to as wolf kink erotica. I'm, oh, well, Jesus. I'm not, I'm not going to. I've heard about it all the time. I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to define it for Richard's you. Richard's like, who's your favorite author? I'm not going to define it for you, Richard. I'll explain it to you when you're older. But oh. here's the story. So there's this whole universe of what's called fan fiction, where people write stories using established characters from well-known intellectual property. This started back in the day, for instance, with people using Star Trek characters. And it has branched out into all of these very specific subgenres, some of them very highly sexual in content. And you can get away with this as long as you're doing it for free and you're not trying to make any IP claims. But there's such a big audience for this that over time... Um, authors have changed enough of the subject matter. They'll make the characters nominally original, for example. 
that it becomes new IP, that they can copyright and profit off of it. So the, the example par excellence of this is the Fifty Shades of Grey books, which eventually became movies and were originally fan fiction based off of Twilight, the vampires and, and werewolves series. Now, the story that the New York Times featured was about a legal dispute between... T- <laughs> Go ahead. I'm going to try. <laughs> between two authors who are in a very specific subgenre that involves intimate relations with wolf-like qualities. I, I believe that's also the definition of a first marriage, but but trust me, it's, it's slightly more carnal than that. So without parsing those details, what's at issue here is that one woman sues the other for copyright violations because their work is so similar. But the argument of the defendant is this whole universe of literature is essentially crowdsourced. They all build on each other, and yes, there are lots of elements in common, but that's the point that's how the genre works this work is built around tropes the similarity is kind of the essence that's how you break into the market so richard epstein a nation of wolf kink erotica enthusiasts turns its lonely eyes to you is there a reasonable standard for this well it turns out this is a very familiar problem um forget about the kinky stuff suppose it Don't turns out that um suppose you have a tribe and what the tribe does is it puts together a whole variety of songs one kind or another and that everybody riffs off of everybody else's song and then somebody comes in from the outside and what they want to do is to claim that uh, their variation off of these particular works is something which they're the author of and there they get the protection i think the answer on those particular cases is that this would count as a derivative work of something which is already in the public domain would probably not have sufficient originality and separation that it could be copyrighted, uh, but in effect uh, would be part of a tradition of the sort that was described here, which says uh, you borrow from somebody else, somebody else borrows from you. Everybody understands in this particular ecosphere uh, that the notion of an author, given the collective nature of the work, is not going to be appropriate. Uh, now, here's something else. Suppose it turns out that somebody starts to hear a bunch of native songs of one kind or another and then decides to write a symphony in which he's going to incorporate echoes of those things using different kinds of instrumentation and so forth. That's a different claim because the way in which you're now putting this stuff to use is, in fact, in a different format from the people who are original. So this is not as though you're just taking the same kind of voices and instrumentation that you had before. Uh, you're putting it into a very different modified and you probably would count as an author uh from the way in which you describe this particular type of situation if it was kinky before the first author got there and it was kinky by the time the second author got there the kinks do not create a chink and so what you're going to have to say is i'm uh, sorry for the thing is that probably uh the second author is free to use what the first author did and then otherwise so in other words what you're going to argue in these cases is a kind of a commons of ideas uh, that nobody else can appropriate. And it's sort of like, you know, a kind of digital universe in which everybody has a creative commons, uh, can use whatever's in there, air whatever they want. Uh, but there's nobody who could copyright that stuff. The only thing that you could protect is something of a distinctly different genre nature uh, that comes out of that particular tradition. So if you get Dvorak writing a Czech symphony, right, based upon Czech folks tunes, I don't think the guys can say, oh, you can't copyright that because of the other thing. But from the way in which you describe this, 
it seems to me that uh, uh, the traditional views that there's no authorship with respect to these common devices would probably carry over here. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is that in some cases, many times these native tribes bring suits against Westerners saying, what you've done is you've basically taken our stuff. We have no individual author, uh, but therefore the group is entitled to claim authorship. Those claims have pretty much uniformly lost on the theory that if it's in the commons and anybody could take it out, and then it's back to what I said before. If you're doing the same thing that everybody else did, probably can't copyright it. If you're making some kind of transformative use, probably yes. Uh, but I suspect there's more specific law on this. But I will say, uh, sorry, Troy. Sorry, John. It is the sort of thing uh, with stripped of its more erotic nature, which is a very <laughs> common problem uh, that exists in the authorial tradition uh, arising under copyright law. And I appreciate that you classed it up with the Dvorak reference. John, as the author of a popular series of very specific and highly disturbing erotica about a rakish law professor, I'll let you have the final word on this. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm willing to fully defer to Richard's command, not just of the law, but of the facts here. I know nothing. <laughs> to, to quote Colonel, uh, not to quote Sergeant Schultz from Hogan <laughs> Sears, I know nothing of this. Nothing. All right. Well, John, that will be your epitaph on his foundation. <laughs> I knew nothing now, and surely I know nothing today. But, no, well. I mean, Look, it, it, there's actually a serious lesson here is uh, if you understand basic legal principles, the number of novel cases is actually smaller than you would have otherwise have thought. Yeah, well, that's a good note to leave us on, Richard, because otherwise, you know, they said there were no further depths we could descend to. But once again, we proved the can critics we, wrong. Just please talk about McDonald's instead of wolves. <laughs> next time. Next time, John. <laughs> so, well, no, it's a, yeah. You deserve a break today, but that's not McDonald's. I don't even remember who it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's, that's that, McDonald's. That's is. McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. That's that is. I mean, it's how powerful the advertisement I know. Is. That's what I'm saying. And and if you ate a McRib when you did that, you would remember the taste and the song simultaneously. You guys are just not going to let me wrap this episode up, are you? I'm going to just pull those through. No, what you Thanks have to do is you, you have to brand us. Brand us. <laughs> Thanks as ever. To our audience, um, hope you enjoyed after that last bit what I'm sure will be the last episode ever of Law Talk. Remember <laughs> to rate the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.